just like to greet you and welcome you again. Um, thanks to all who are joining us online in the tent and over in the chapel. If I haven't got to meet you, my name is Joseph Carlson, and I've been uh, blessed to call this My Jesus Community for the last eight years, seven of which I was privileged to serve on staff here with our production team. So shout out to my people up there in the booth. Um, in October, I was privileged to graduate to volunteer status. Um, the highest place of honor at this church is the countless people who make things run uh, just because of their love of Jesus, not because of a paycheck in any way, shape, or form. So I serve now as the editor-in-chief over at Nations Media, and I'm privileged to get to come and to share with you guys today what God has put on my heart for us, the people of God. Um, normally, this is where I'd pause and I'd pray, because I need it. Everybody who dares to step on this stage needs God's grace and his mercy, um, to be honest to the text, and to be honest about the challenges that face us as just humans living in the world, um, filled with hopes and dreams and brokenness. Uh, but I'd like to do something a little bit different because this service is a little bit different. We're focusing, as you just heard, on what's known as the Last Supper. And in this church, we typically, we take communion, Lord's Supper, Eucharist, it's got many different names, but we take it on the first Sunday of the month. And if you've been coming for t some time, then you know that we you, you pick up your, your tiny little plastic cup with the th tiny little wafer on top, and then we participate together. Today we're going to do things a little bit different. You might notice that there's some tables up here. There's actually six in this room. There's two in the tent and two over in the chapel. And on it, there is real bread, and there's a real cup filled with real juice. And that real bread, actually, most of it was made by real people who go to this church. So a uh, round of applause for the ladies who made uh, bread that we'll be enjoying today. This is special because this is what we're going to do, and I'm going to ask us to do it a little bit differently. I'll explain some more or refresh your memory when we get to this point in the service. But, you know, we're, you're, I'm going to ask us all to, to stand up and to move down and to come and to take the bread and to dip it, to receive it. Um, I'm wanting us to do it this way because it's physical, because it's us enacting something that is probably one of the oldest traditions in the Christian faith. Um, before baptism was a, an official rite, Jesus institutes this at the Last Supper. Different accounts, you know, have him saying, hey, do this in remembrance of me. So just know that when we do it today, we're going to be participating in something that has transcended generations and generations. It's one of the few things in Christianity that we can all really agree upon. Everybody does this, no matter if you're Baptist or Catholic, okay? Um, so it's this corporate thing. So I'd like for us to begin by praying corporately together. Is that okay? Okay. You're all going to pray out loud? No. <laughs> We're going to pray a prayer that you know. Uh, you don't have to make it up as you go. It's actually, um, the fullest version is in Matthew. So we're going to pray the Lord's Prayer because um, it's how Jesus taught us to pray, his people. And it's beautiful. It contains so much of the, the message of Jesus. And it paints this picture of the kingdom of God, the kingdom that we're asking God to bring and to enact here on earth. We so desperately need his justice to right the injustice, his healing to heal the brokenness in our own lives and in the world. Is that right? Well, would you guys pray with me? This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Amen. 
Today is also a little bit of a, a realization of a dream because for seven years when I was helping to run production, I was always like, man, can we, can we do it with like bread and a cup and, you know, instead of just the little, the little cups, which is how I grew up, okay? So I want to share briefly a, a personal story about why this text is so meaningful to me and why this practice has been crucial in my own faith. See, I grew up in the church I met Jesus at an early age. You know, I kind of came up through the youth group. I was a worship leader. I then go on to college. I start studying theology. And it was during that time, like the story goes, that I kind of also, while I'm studying, I also am falling further and further away from God in many ways. And I am starting to get really uncomfortable with the expression of church that I had grown up um, knowing. And so it led to about 10 years of wandering for me. Uh, and a lot of those 10 years were really broken years. Those were years where I wrestled deeply with depression, with anxiety, with addiction, with just making choices, free choices, because I was like, you know what? I don't know if I really buy any of that stuff anymore. I'm not really sure if I can really believe in this whole God thing. Um, and so I kind of went my own way. Well, we all know this, how that kind of ends up. Uh, ended up pretty broken. Ended up in a place where I finally kind of said, okay, God, I still don't trust you. I still don't really know about this whole Christianity thing, but like this clearly isn't working. So I guess I'll go start going back to church. So I go with my older brother and his wife to Bethany Community Church in Green Lake, Seattle, uh, where I'm born and raised. And uh, I walk in and man, I have this negative visceral, re- visceral reaction. And maybe that's what some of you have felt when you walk through these doors today. Maybe you're sitting here feeling uncomfortable being like, why did I come? Why did I let somebody drag me here. Maybe when we were playing, singing some worship, it was really hard for you to connect. And you were just like, "Ah, yeah, uh, I don't know. I can't really get into this. Um, That's how I would feel. You know, so I I was a worship leader, so I was perfectly equipped to judge every musician, every song that I heard being sung. I'd also studied theology, so I was, in my arrogance and wisdom of youth, I was, of course, knew better than the, than the preacher. And so, any sermon they gave, well, I just poke hold. That's not how you execute that. Oh, well, that's a terrible analogy. Basically, what I'm describing is somebody who was really wounded. Somebody who um, had, had a, a lot of scar tissue, and somebody who had built a wall between my heart and God. Then something amazing started to happen which is that I would just kind of keep going. Anytime I went to a church, over this course of probably about 10 years where I didn't have a, t- a church home, and even actually when I started working here, because uh, I was still a pretty wounded person in a lot of ways when I started working at this church, anytime I was in a church where they were taking communion, where the people of God were coming together and were doing this, that was the only part of the service where something changed, and almost without fail, I would just be really deeply touched. I wouldn't understand why I'm sitting there in the back being like, why am I crying right now like a weirdo? Like, you know, um, like I've seen this done before. But something was happening. I don't claim to know particularly what. There's been all sorts of theological debates about what actually is happening when we celebrate this together. I just know that it is powerful. I just know that it was through that that God began to pierce that own wall in my heart and began to ask me this question of like, hey, do you trust me? Will you trust me to show you who I really am? Not who you thought that I was, not who you maybe have experienced, you've heard, not what you may assume Christianity to be, but can I show you my heart? Because that's what this is. This is the heart of God that we're about to, to view and to participate in. 
So that's why today is really meaningful to me, and why I feel really honored. And I kind of approach this text with fear and trembling in a lot of ways, because I know uh, the power of what Jesus is doing here has the power to transform. Because it's the thing that broke through my own heart, which got me, which led me on my own healing journey, where I encountered the truth of who Jesus is, and that has changed everything for me. So, before I go any further, I'm just going to tell you the takeaways, because some of you guys are like me and your ADD, and you're going you're gonna to tune out in, in about two more minutes of me talking. So, before you do that, this, if, you, if you hear anything, then hear this. You can then tune out and then tune back in when it comes time for us to participate in communion, okay? So, my takeaways for this sermon, which I've entitled, um, Taken or Chosen, Blessed, Broken, and Given. Can we get that? Can we say this together? Taken, blessed, broken, given. If you walk away from anything today, I want you to walk away with those four words and a, a, and a deeper understanding about how they reveal the heart of God and how they reveal who you truly are and who you're called to be in this world. Okay? So, to build on that, our takeaways are, number one, have you accepted Jesus' gracious invitation to God's transgressive table where women, children, and disciples who will all abandon and betray him are made welcome. You are welcome at the feast of God, no matter what you have done. There is an open invitation for you here today. And maybe some of you haven't received that invitation. Um, we have this, just this belief here that God is constantly moving towards us. He's the God who pursues us. He's the God who calls, who beckons to us by his beauty, his kindness, and his goodness. So maybe he's been calling and beckoning to you. Maybe you have been called and invited by a friend, or maybe you just, for some other reason, showed up here today. Uh, maybe today is the day where you want to receive the invitation. If so, then we're going to give you an opportunity later. We just think it's a good practice, because we don't know. Like, maybe today is the day you're ready to say yes. Or maybe, um, like me, you're somebody who grew up in the church, and you've been walking with Jesus or, wa or running away from him for a long time, and today is a day where you you are going to be touched and experience the truth of who Jesus is and his love for you, and you are going to want to recommit, to say yes again to the feast. So have you accepted that invitation? And then the second one, are we modeling by our table practices or our life practices the ministry of Jesus? Because, see, he, he's got this thing with food. I mean, he came and he proclaimed the kingdom of God is here. That's his main message. We're like, okay, that's pretty easy. Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. Well, what does that mean? What does that look like? Well, the rest of his life and ministry is demonstrating. It's, not, it's demonstrating, unpacking that phrase of what the kingdom means. So we're going to sing a song later that's actually based around the Beatitudes, which is the core of his message, the Sermon on the Mount. And it's this vision, this powerful, subversive vision about what the kingdom of God looks like. So are we modeling our life and our practices on Jesus's? Because, see, he got in trouble constantly. Food was a big thing. I mean, he's multiplying it all over the place. He's feeding thousands of people. He's also accepting scandalous inv invitations to come dine with people who it's not okay for him to be dining with. So that's a, that poses a question to you and I, which is like, hey, are our lives modeling that? Are our lives marked by generosity where we are spending ourselves on behalf of others, where we are being generous with what we have, where we are extending invitations to people that 
we might not normally, that aren't just friends that would respond back with generosity. Sacrificial generosity. Is that marking our lives? Because it marks Jesus's. Are you receiving invitations? Because that's part of what Jesus does too. He receives people's hospitality and generosity, which is also a way to give a gift. To receive well is actually to give a gift also. So, you can now tune out. Um, that's basically it. But for the rest of you nerds, you can follow, uh, you can continue on this, this journey with me. So when I say the Last Supper, I've told you a little bit about what it means for me, about why I'm excited. But when I ask you to envision, okay, like in, close your eyes and imagine when I say the Last Supper, what do you immediately see? Anybody want to share? Painting. Painting. Ugh, I'll pay you later. <laughs> Here's this painting, right? Thank you, Leonardo, for this beautiful uh, masterpiece, one of the most iconic, famous religious paintings in the history of the world that is so drastically wrong and inaccurate. <laughs> and it seems to be a theme. Let's just examine really brief, briefly, shall we? What is wrong with this picture? Because this is not the way that it looked. Um, first of all, they are sitting at a table. That didn't happen. There was no table. They wouldn't have been seated there. Second, it's all men. In this text, we've got great reason to believe in Scripture that it wasn't just the 12. In fact, this room was much larger than what you can imagine here, and it was filled it was filled with the community that had been building around Jesus and his ministry. It was filled with the women who were a crucial part of his ministry. There's actually good evidence, textual evidence, that probably the room that they were occupying was the upper room owned by Mary, the mother of John Mark, who author, likely author of this gospel, a wealthy woman who was crucial to the early church's ministry. It's that same upper room where in Acts later, the Holy Spirit is going to descend and unleash a whole new reality. So it was probably bigger than this. They probably weren't seated at a table. It probably wasn't just all men, and they definitely weren't all white. <laughs> because, believe it or not, there are no white people in the Bible. Just a fun fact. Um, I just thought it was kind of an entertaining one as I was studying this week. Um, but this seems to be a theme. Like, I think that we have in our, in our minds this, like, this wrong vision in a lot of ways about what the significance of this is that takes place. Let's just go through a couple more pictures because he's not the only one that got it wrong. Here we have the very holy Jesus with his, his halo. Once again, we already named some of the things that are probably wrong about this. Also, if you watched um, Indiana Jones, it probably wasn't, right? Wasn't the golden chalice. It's the really humble wood ones that you see here. Next one. I do like this one more uh, because it at least has, while there's still a table and it's still predominantly the 12, at least there's represented, like you can kind of see there's, there's some angels, there's a spirit, there's a presence that's here, which surely was there in many ways. And then also you've got, you can see there's at least some women that are like kind of serving, but it's pretty dark and brooding, right? Um, which there is a heaviness to this moment and we'll get into that, but there's also for us, deep joy, so it doesn't quite cut it for me. Uh, go to the next one. This one. I like this one, because any guesses? Who do you think this might be? <laughs> I'm about to betray him. Judas. 
I thought that was a nice little comic touch. He just seems so worried. All right, next one. Ah, uh, yes, football-faced Jesus. <laughs> Super Dutch Reformed, maybe, like Luther, Reformation, I don't know. Once again, all, all of the, the problems that we already identified. Last one. Okay, so it's a little grainy, but that's actually kind of beautiful, because in many ways, this picture that we're looking at here of the Last Supper, Mark doesn't include everything. So I want to try and fill in some of what's going on here and what makes this significant for us. But what is beautiful about this, what is more accurate is that, yeah, see, they're, they're reclining. And they're, that's significant because in that day and age, to be able to recline while eating meant that what? It meant that you were safe. It meant that you were free. Slaves didn't get to recline and eat like this, okay? This is a this is a beautiful feast. Also, as you can see, like the room is larger, like I mentioned, and at least there are some other figures. There would have been children here as well, probably, because as the text shows us, what's going on here is that they're actually celebrating the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, for us, um, if you're here, I'm going to assume that you probably don't have, uh, you're probably not a practicing Jew, uh, and you might not come from that tradition. So, it's hard for us with our kind of Protestant evangelical imagination to approach this and to understand like the gravity of what's going on here. So I just want to name a couple of things for us. They're celebrating the Passover, which is the holiest feast in the Jewish uh, religious calendar. So when people pilgrim, pilgrimage to Jerusalem, and it's this massive feast, like I was looking at some of the potential numbers about, I mean, they're talking like over 200,000 lambs and stuff that were slaughtered when people would come. Um, just an insane amount of people come to celebrate this. Why? And what are they celebrating? Well, they're celebrating the Exodus, okay? Which, for the Jewish people, is this foundational moment. It is this defining story. It's from where they get their, the root of their identity. It's this story of God entering into their history to what? To liberate and to free them from bondage from slavery to Egypt. Now, for us, you and I aren't enslaved. We are, we're free in so many incredible ways. We are blessed. We are wealthy. We are privileged. We are safe in so many ways. But I'm willing to bet that each of us walked into this room today and we had experienced, we've experienced some bondage. We have some oppression in our own lives. We have some things that are not right. We have some things that have their claws in us that we need to be freed from. And it could just be a wrong way of viewing ourselves, God, the world. It could be addiction. It could be um, unresolved emotional wounds. But just know this, behind and underneath and all around this text of what Jesus is doing is this God who has proven history of being invested in his people, of saying, hey, I'm going to enter into your story and I want to free you to be my people and to walk with me. So they're remembering during the Passover. They're remembering who God is, what he has done, and what that says about who they are, what it means to be Israel. They're also anticipating. So there's remembrance on one hand, there's anticipation on the other. They're anticipating a future day where the Messiah is going to come and is going to liberate them. Why? Well, haven't they already been liberated? Well, in this context, they have been liberated from Egypt, right? But now they're under the oppression of Rome. I mean, Israel is still a vassal state. It is still, like, they, they're not totally free. And that's this theme. It was true then, and it's too, true now. While we may be free in many ways, there are all sorts of kingdoms and empires that are still at work in our day today. 
that render us not entirely free. Um, that's just part of what it means to be a Christian, is to live in the tension of history where the kingdom of God that, that Jesus announced when he began his ministry, that he embodied throughout his, his practice, in which the Holy Spirit has prompted us to try and continue to usher into history. Like, it's now and it's not yet. So just like it was for them, it is for you and I now. There is freedom. God has moved in your life in different ways at different times, and it's important that we remember that. But it's also important to anticipate that there's going to be a day where the great Christian hope is that one day that the story of history will finally change. It will no longer be marked by a now and a not yet. There'll be a consummation. There'll be a moment where God makes everything right. There's a new heavens and a new earth where there is no more mourning, right? There is no more pain, where weapons are beat and bent into plowshares, tools of cultivation, not tools of war. Do we pray that that day comes soon? Yes, I pray that it comes soon. So this is the backdrop of what's going on. And then we get to this crucial, the crucial part that I want us to just pause for the uh, remaining minutes of my time. He comes, they prepared the place, he's kind of predicted what's happening, demonstrating that he is a, he, he's got agency, he's not a victim, he knows what's coming and he walks into it because, as the New Testament says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross and scorned its shame. For you and I, for the joy that would come from setting you and I free to be in right relationship with him, for the joy of ushering in a new covenant by his own body and blood, he, he walks into this eyes wide open, ready to endure suffering. So then he goes and he does this really beautiful and this really simple thing that they would have done. Um, there's four parts to the Passover, just like there's kind of four movements that we're walking through. And it, in between, you drink four glasses of wine throughout the course of the evening. And so this would have been, the, the cup that Jesus uses to institute this new covenant would have been the third so it's about halfway or two-thirds of the way through this meal, and he would have picked up the matzah bread, the unleavened bread that they used to remember that they fled Egypt. He'd break it, and then they would tell the story, and they would drink the third cup. So is, this all makes a lot of sense. But then, Joseph, uh, then Jesus fills it with a, a new meaning. He introduces the fact that, hey, betrayal is going to happen. And all of a sudden, all of us who are in the room, because it says, betrayal is going to happen for anybody who's, who eats with me. That's everybody that's in the room. Then he narrows it to the 12, and we're, you know, you and I all go, well, at least I'm not one of the 12, so I won't betray him. Well, sort of. Part of the beautiful thing about what Jesus is doing here is that everybody is going to betray him. It's not just Judas. The rest of the disciples, they end up denying and fleeing and betraying him in all sorts of different ways. And isn't that true of you and I? I know it's true of me. Man, the countless times where I have betrayed Jesus, where I have fled to some other refuge than him, where I have found my value and my worth some other place than in who God says that I am. So he takes, he blesses, he breaks, and then he gives. That's what he does in, in verse 22. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to the disciples, saying, Take it. This is my body. That's where he went off script. They were not expecting him to say that. He's supposed to tell a different story there. But he breaks into their, their history with his story, saying, hey, actually, I am the sacrifice 
It's no longer just the bread and the lamb. It's me. I give you myself. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many. So this right here, Jesus is describing, I think, the shape of his own life, what it means for him to be the Son of God, which also means he's describing for you and I the shape of our, our lives and what that should look like. That looks like being taken, blessed, broken, and given. So what, is that, what do I mean by that? Well, briefly, what does it mean to be taken? Well, really what we're talking about here, and I, a lot of what I'm, I'm sharing here, I've gleaned from the spiritual giant Henry Nouwen and his tiny little book called Life of the Beloved. So I'd recommend, if you haven't read it, get it. It is such an easy read. It's so accessible. And it was him trying to articulate to friends of his who were not, who didn't believe in this whole Jesus thing, what it meant to live a life of the beloved, to be the beloved. Because that's really what's at the heart of it. it means to be a Christian in so many ways. It means to understand that God loves you, that it is, that God's love abounds for you and for me and for the broken world. So much so that he has gone to such lengths to come after you and after me, giving every drop of his own blood. So what does it mean to, when I say to be take? Take. Well, a different word would be chosen. This speaks to identity. So when you choose somebody, it means that you are saying, I see you. I see the unique person that you are. And when God chooses you and me, when he takes you and me, what he says fundamentally is, hey, you are my child. And that in you, I am well pleased. He says the same thing to you and me that he said to his son. Because we know in the Genesis accounts, like we were created in the image of God, and regardless of what happens at the fall, there's, the image of God can never fully be erased from you and I, right? So it's important for us to remember that the core of who you are has to be your true identity. Your true identity in who God says you are is his beloved child. But that's not what you and I do. So often, you and I, seeking significance, seeking safety, seeking to belong or to be known, what do we do? Well, we place our identity, we root it in other things. And typically, I mean, it's just, it's an ancient story. We find worth and value in what it is that we do. I am X. I am a doctor. I am a father. I am a son. I am successful. I am an athlete. I am a musician. I am a XYZ, right? You just, you fill in the blank with Or... I am what I have. I am financially secure. I am upwardly mobile. Or I am what other people think of me. I am respected. I am, uh, I am useful. None of those ultimately will, will do. We have to begin with this core truth. We have to allow ourselves to be chosen by God. It's what he longs to do. And when he does, he gives you that, that core identity, which is the the only foundation, who Jesus is, is the only secure foundation for us to, to build our identity on. After that, he moves on. So that's maybe what it, a picture of what it could look like to be chosen or taken for you and I. Then it's blessed. Why is blessing so important? Blessing is more than just encouragement. Blessing is more than affirmation. There is a power in blessing that I don't entirely understand how it works, but I believe that it is true because I have experienced when people bless me, something happens. Now, what I think is going on, when, when you get blessed, part of what you're doing there is that you are calling out that chosenness, calling out that true identity. 
When I say, hey, I bless you, I bless you in the name of Jesus. Well, that's a reminder that you are Christ's, that you have been chosen by God. When somebody blesses me, they call out all the truth about who I really am, not all of the false self stuff, not all my performance, not all of my baggage and my pain. No, they, they say like, hey, you are worthy of love, you are worthy of acceptance simply for who you are because of who God says that you are. So what would it look like, church, if we became a people of blessing? Unfortunately, in our day and age, like, what is the number one thing? What do all the polls say when people are asked, hey, what, does, what do you think of immediately when, I, when the uh, word Christian is used? What was that? Is it bad? Yeah, bad. What's another word? Hypocrite, Hypocrite judgmental, yeah. Fanatical. Fanatical, there you go. These are the words when people, when the world looks at Christians, these are the words that most often comes to mind. What might it take for that to change? Because that does not sound like blessing to me right? That does not sound like we are known as a people of blessing. What would it look like to be proactive in the way that we seek to bless our families and our communities, our workplaces? Regardless, like to start with blessing, because that's, that's how we've experienced, we've experienced God's blessing in our own lives, how he graciously moves towards us first. That's what Jesus is demonstrating here. He, his blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many, that's him willingly giving of himself. Romans says, but before, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, right? He gave the sacrifice first. God blessed him first at his, you know, before he'd done anything else, at his baptism. He hadn't performed any miracles. He hadn't called, he hadn't founded the church. He hadn't died yet. And, and God says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. What if we were known to, as a people of blessing? To encourage you in what that might look like, I want to recommend another book, because I like books, and I think it's good if you read. And it's called The Way of Blessing, and it tells a story of this small community called Faldy Brennan in Wales, and what happens when some new leadership feels led by God to change their whole ministry outlook, to move from being kind of classically evangelistic in certain ways, and to just simply start to pray for blessing, for God to pour out his blessing and his presence in their community. And the transformation and the things that start to happen are astounding and inspired me. And when I read it, I was like, I want to be a part of that. I want to be a part of blessing the world. But then that leads us to brokenness. So taken, chosen, blessed. Your identity is affirmed. You live in the blessing of God. You are poured into so that you can overflow with blessing in the world. And then we come to when the rubber hit meets the road, which is the breaking. It's the inevitable part of the journey of discipleship, of what it means to follow Jesus, is that, hey, if he was willing to suffer and die through obedience to his Father so that we might live, that's what we're called to do as well. And that looks different for each of us in our lives. Every single day, you and I have this opportunity, this invitation to practice this beautiful form of obedience, which is death to self, of saying, hey, what it means to be a Christian means to be somebody who is fundamentally others-centered, not from a place of, I want to please you or I want to get something to, from you. No, simply as this gracious gift, this desire to say, hey, I have been so blessed, I am so loved by God that like, I want to love and bless you. It's important that we, we grasp this because breaking happens. 
How many of you, let me see a raise of hands, how many of you have ever felt broken by life? Wounded, frustrated. It's everybody in this room. And if your hand isn't raised, it's probably because you're young and you just haven't lived long enough. <laughs> no need to go seek it out. This, isn't a, this faith isn't a self-flagellation one. No, 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 like it will, suffering will come one way or another. Sickness, death, disappointment, heartbreak, bankruptcy, you name it. The regular stuff of life is going to happen. The question is, who are we going to be when that moment comes? Well, if you, have, if you have accepted your chosenness, if you've been allowed yourself to be taken hold of by the love of God, where he is giving you this identity that is unshakable, where you can have peace and feel rooted, where that's where you find your worth. If you've been practicing walking in the way of blessing, well, then when you come to brokenness, these incredible things happen. You can find joy in the midst of heartbreak. You can be at peace even though you are weeping. You can be a source of light and comfort and joy for other people when they are in a place of brokenness. You can honor your brokenness, the brokenness of others, and the brokenness of the world instead of rejecting it because, hey, that's where most of the pain comes in is when we refuse, when we reject the wounded parts of our own soul, when we reject the wounded behaviors of other people. That's where we can start to exercise this blame or this shame or this control is when we don't welcome it and say, hey, well, maybe there's a gift here. Maybe I can discover that there's, in fact, a gift in this, even, even in this brokenness, because that's how good and how all-pervasive God's love is. And then finally, after he took it and he blessed it and he broke it, he gave it to his disciples. He gave it as food. He, he offers it to us as a symbol of a new covenant. Fundamental to Jesus is the fact that he is always ready to give himself to you and to me. He is always ready to feed us, to multiply the scarcity in our lives so that we experience abundance, to heal the wounded places, to give us courage where we're cowardly. Jesus is constantly wanting to give of himself to you. I'm going to ask the band to come and join me because as per usual, I'm the the preacher's running a little bit long. And as I said, the main, like the main point of, of this service today, then we might understand, not because I told you, but because we get to participate in the table. Jesus, read those words again. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, saying, take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Jesus poured out himself for you and for me. So if you're one of those people that you found yourself today, you found yourself here, weirdly, in church, um, alone or with a friend who invited you, and uh, you haven't ever accepted the invitation to the table of God, just know that it is extended to you today. I'm not going to make you ask, like, raise your hand or anything. Um, we're about to do something that will create plenty of cover for you to just sit and have a moment. Okay? There's these tables around the room, and I'm going to I'm going to ask us all to, as orderly as possible, but knowing that it's just going to be messy, to get up and to come down, and you'll find the bread that our friends have baked for us. Just to take it, dip it in the cup, and then you can either take it there or return back to your seat and just meditate on what it might mean for you that Jesus allowed himself to be chosen, to be blessed, to be broken, and to be given on our behalf.
So maybe today is the first day that you accept that invitation. Or maybe you were like me that for years had that wall built up around your own heart and you are exhausted, you are heavy laden. Well, there's a lighter burden for you today and I, and I think that you can receive it in part by coming up and symbolically taking the bread and taking the cup. So for all of us, um, as we do this, as we participate as a, uh, in the history of the church, in the oldest tradition, um, may God meet you. May you feel the warmth of his love. Um, bless your heart because you are chosen. You are blessed. He was broken and poured out for your behalf. And this is good news. Amen, church? Let me pray for us as we go into this song that Christina and, the, and listen as they meditate for us on, on the message from the Beatitudes about what the kingdom of heaven can look like. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Jesus, we thank you. Holy Spirit, we thank you for your presence with us today, for your word, for your story, for the way that you have engrafted and invited us into that. Let's ask, Holy Spirit, that you do the work that you want and long to do in each of our minds and our hearts as we go into this moment where we receive your broken body and your poured out blood. Amen. I invite you to come forward to the elements. There's a couple of other stations out in the corners. Blessed are the ones who do not bury all the broken pieces of their heart. Blessed are the tears of all the weary, pouring like a sky of falling stars. Blessed are the wounded ones in
subversive table and then then having done so are we by our own life practices our own table practices are we opening our homes are we eating together I mean I'm just talking really tangibly you know I love uh, Nick said something to me years ago that really stuck in my head which is that he's like yeah dude I don't know if you can really call yourself true friends if you haven't eaten in somebody's home I was like oh that's a good that's a good challenge are we opening our homes? Are we sharing? Are we breaking bread together with us in this community? But then also, importantly, are you opening your homes and your lives in hospitable and radically generous ways that demonstrates the fact that, and bears witness to the fact that you are chosen, you have been chosen by God, that you have been blessed by Him, that you have been broken of your old way of thinking, of, of that false belief that it is up to you to be prove yourself significant or worthy of love. No, you've been broken of that. You've learned to accept pain and suffering as just a part, because a part of the, the way of Jesus, because he did that for us. And then, have you allowed yourselves to be given, given to the world, to be his hands and his feet? Because that's the way that he heals. I mean, yes, he does it in miraculous and powerful ways by his Holy Spirit and just interpersonal relationship with him and engagement with him, but so much of the healing that he longs to bring to the world is through you and through me. So church, as we, as we go from this place, remember, you have been chosen, you have been blessed, you have been broken, and now you're being given to a world who is weary and who is in need of hope. Verse 26 in our text says, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and what they would have sung would have been probably one of or all of what's known as the Halal Psalms. which is the Psalms uh, 115 or 116 through 118. And so I thought it'd be fitting that um, 
And maybe I'll ask you guys to stand to receive this as our, our blessing and our benediction. Because I think that there are little ones that need to be picked up from children's ministry. I'm going to read Psalm 118. And it's got a little bit of a, uh, it's got a little bit of a part for you guys, okay? So these, they would have sung all of these. And since we don't know what that tune sounds like, and I didn't ask the, the band for, to do this, like, arduous task of figuring out how to write three psalms into one song, um, this is what they would have sung. So we participate, again, in the rhythm and the ritual that they would have Psalm 118, it's gonna, it says, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. And then you guys say, his love endures forever. Okay, so give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. Let Israel say, his love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his love endures forever. It goes on to say, when hard pressed, I cried to the Lord. He brought me into a spacious place. The Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? The Lord is with me. He is my helper. I look in triumph on my enemies. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in humans. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Christ, our cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So let us, church, rejoice and be glad. And as we go from this place, let's say one more time that what? His love endures forever. May you be blessed, church, as you go out this week. Amen. Thank you.